0: Hello! You are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera.
1: And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it
0: is. We record the real life memories and perspectives of those who experienced the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And this season, we're looking at Steel City Outsiders and the institutional avant-garde. Or... Or the story of how Oakland, our neighborhood here in Pittsburgh, emerged as an unlikely center for avant-garde and experimental arts in the 1970s.
1: So, this season, we are diving into stories about how this happened, as told by the people who were actually there.
0: they stories about starting something new, about not necessarily having a plan or funding, but finding a way to do it anyway. These are stories about finding belonging and community and forging new creative forms.
1: We were talking about avant-garde film.
0: We're talking about punk.
1: We're talking about electronic art.
0: We're talking about how computers changed art and music and arts communities themselves.
1: So last time we ended with a bit of a cliffhanger.
0: Yeah, in 1975, Sally Dixon left the film section at Carnegie Museum of Art, but Oakland now had a burgeoning film scene. Now there was a place where the average Pittsburgher could go and see non-linear, non-narrative films for the first time.
1: And spoiler, the film section carried on, and we'll talk about that in a later episode.
0: But for this episode, we want to talk about a beloved Pittsburgh institution that arose in parallel and in collaboration with the film section. It's called... Pittsburgh Filmmakers.
1: So if you listen to episode one, we're basically going to retell that same story. But instead of focusing on the film section, we're going to focus on Pittsburgh Filmmakers. It's a different angle to the same story. And I'd say this version of the story is a little more chaotic because we're dealing with many more voices and we're dealing with a cooperative
0: So for those of you who don't know about Pittsburgh Filmmakers, it was one of the oldest media arts centers in the country until it closed recently in 2019. Locals know it through things like its photography and film classes, the old school darkroom experience.
1: And they also did the Three Rivers Film Festival. It began in 1982 as a partnership between Pittsburgh Filmmakers, the Carnegie Museum of Art, and the then-independent Three Rivers Arts Festival.
0: Right, because the Three Rivers Arts Festival is now part of the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust.
1: I actually have very fond memories of attending the Three Rivers Film Festival and other screenings at Pittsburgh Filmmakers when I was in high school and college. And later when I started making documentaries, I premiered most of my early films at the Melwood Screening Room, which was a 130-seat room in the Melwood Avenue location of Pittsburgh Filmmakers. Lots of good memories.
0: Oh, cool. I didn't know you screened films there.
1: Yeah, it was the place for local filmmakers to screen work, and that's because it was both affordable and accessible. And the place just had a good vibe. I think a lot of the appeal of making art is hanging out with friends and sharing work, and Pittsburgh filmmakers offered that. So I think a cool way to start this episode would be to talk about Werner Hartzog. He's a filmmaker... Uh, You might know him, and he visited Pittsburgh filmmakers in 1980. Welcome back, stranger here, uh, Werner Herzog.
0: Didn't he also attend Duquesne University in the early 60s for film studies? Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, he was in town for a bit on a Fulbright scholarship.
2: And uh, without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce the man who was responsible for so many of such films that we've seen and more to come in the series. Welcome, Werner Herzog.
3: Thank you very much, thank you. I may look a little bit immobile, but I'm still functioning. Um, I have lived here in this city for, that was 15 years ago, for almost three quarters of a year, and I'm very pleased to be back here. I'm also very pleased to see my foster family here a family who has picked me up, literally picked me up from the streets. I was uh, here under very difficult circumstances, and I had a difficult but very, very beautiful time. And I'm very pleased that after so many years, I've also found an audience for my films here.
0: So Herzog came back in 1980 to give a lecture at Carnegie Museum of Art, which screened 14 of his films that winter.
1: And recently, I conducted an oral history interview with Ralph Fittuccio, who is a CMU professor and filmmaker. And Ralph was also an instructor and board member at Pittsburgh Filmmakers for a number of years. And he told me a rather interesting story about Herzog.
2: Well, we Herzog. had come a couple
4: of times. I remember, you know, seeing him and he was obviously he was going to give a lecture and I'm coming in and he was coming in too. And we came in at the same time and I said, you go ahead. And we were walking up and he turned around and go do I know you in that German accent? He goes, I got, no, no, you don't know me. I don't think so. And he goes, he just turns around and walks up. But he was fine because he would look at people's work. And I remember one fellow showed some films, showed a film, and he said, so uh," Hartzog said, in a very nice way, he said,
2: "Uh, so uh, this is a hobby of yours. (laughs) And I was like, whoa. I got hurt. It was the guy that I, I didn't know him well, but I know he'd been making films for a number of years. And he didn't wear about so, so this is your hobby, huh? Really, it was wow.
0: Oof. That is tough. Indeed. <laughs> so before we talk about how Pittsburgh Filmmakers began and what it provided... Let's briefly take stock of what existed film-wise in Pittsburgh in the 1960s.
1: Yeah, that's a good idea. We've been talking about Sally Dixon, the film section, and avant-garde filmmaking as a reaction to Hollywood film, and as something that filled a cultural void. But Pittsburgh had other film activities— I mean, there were a ton of movie theaters showing Hollywood films.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Downtown was a hot spot for cinemas.
1: Yeah, there was a Bally's Fitness Club downtown, which I think is closed now, but that used to be the Gateway Movie Theater. Heinz Hall, the Benetton Center, and the Byam Theater used to be movie theaters too. Downtown also had two literal underground theaters, the Fiesta Theater and Chatham Cinema.
0: And in our neighborhood of Oakland, there was the King's Court Theater, which started as a police station.
1: And uh, after being a movie theater, King's Court became the Beehive concert venue. And unfortunately, its fate is now a Noodles & Company, along with mixed-use office space.
0: So in addition to lots of neighborhood movie theaters, Pittsburgh contained aspects of film industry infrastructure— WRS Motion Picture Labs was selling and processing film for sports teams. In fact, Sally Dixon used to run footage from visiting filmmakers down to WRS to get it processed, often screening the footage that week.
1: And within two decades, WRS would grow to be one of the largest film printing, processing, storage, and restoration companies outside of Hollywood. They had films from Paramount, Sony, Fox, and Disney, They processed NASA films, and they processed FBI films. But back in the 1960s, the company was still only a decade into existence, and they were still figuring out how to keep money coming in.
0: Elsewhere, director George Romero was just getting started. He arrived in Pittsburgh to attend Carnegie Tech, back when we were known as Carnegie Tech, not Carnegie Mellon. And after graduating, he set up a company called Latent Image in 1962 to make commercials and instructional videos, He even did a segment for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And uh, in
1: 1968, Romero directed Night of the Living Dead. It eventually generated $30 or $50 million, depending on your source, on a budget of merely $114,000. And the film caused many children to have perpetual nightmares. At the time, there was no MPAA rating system, and horror movies often screened as a Saturday afternoon matinee, this meant that a lot of children were able to buy tickets and then lose their minds once the graphic violence and bloodshed hit the screen.
0: Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, just as horrifying, because of a technicality where the distributor didn't copyright the movie, the film is in the public domain, so that 30 to $50 million didn't quite reach George Romero's pocket.
1: So, all this activity is happening in parallel with Sally Dixon, the film section, and our topic for today, Pittsburgh filmmakers. So as we saw in episode one, Sally Dixon was a connector.
0: Yeah, she connected the avant-garde filmmakers from New York with Pittsburgh's filmmaking community, and she corralled local foundations and funders to put money behind these initiatives. Though not always smooth, there was a marriage of the artist and the institution. And at the macro level, these connections may seem grand or formal, but they often started with a phone call. Here's filmmaker Victor Grauer and the story of how he met Sally.
5: But when I uh, arrived in Pittsburgh, I remember getting a call at my office at Pitt from Sally Dixon, and she somehow found out that I was a new member of the faculty, and she wanted to let me know that... Stan Brackage was going to be coming to um present his films at her venue, Carnegie Institute, and she was going to give me this whole pitch about how important Brackage was. But I already knew all about Brackage, and I'd seen several of his films, and I was uh very excited about his work, so I was able to tell her that I was very interested and I definitely went to the screening that Brackage presented. I met Sally there. And she told me about the efforts that she was making with a group of people to get get a film I don't know if you call it a film club, uh, what eventually became Pittsburgh filmmakers, okay?
1: Ben O'Grodnick, Assistant Professor of Art at Del Mar College, joins us again to share analysis from his extensive research on avant-garde filmmaking in Pittsburgh.
4: Sally Dixon was one of the key people who co-founded Pittsburgh filmmakers. She worked with Charles Glassmeyer and other people in the community like Robert Gaylor, who was another early filmmaker who contributed to the community in in the late 60s. There there were a handful of people who put their minds together and decided, we need a space where local artists can make their work too.
5: And I volunteered to become part of that. So I became one of the uh, founding members of of Pittsburgh filmmakers, and I wound up on the board of directors fairly early on.
0: Here
1: is Charles Glassmeyer.
3: Um, Charles Glassmeyer, artist, scientist,
1: and teacher. Charles started the Crumbling Wall screening series, and in our conversation, he mentioned that he was really involved in helping Sally draft the proposal for what became the film section and also Pittsburgh filmmakers.
3: At that time, let's see, I was uh, teaching film... At the community college, a woman showed up in my class, who I hadn't seen before, and it turned out to be Sally Dixon. We uh, we got to talking afterwards, and it turned out that she was involved with the Carnegie Museum, uh, and she wanted to start a, f- a program in film, showing film and talking about film and maybe even making film. She loved film, and she was interested, but she didn't know any of that technical stuff. So uh, she asked me if I would work with her in putting together the proposal, which uh, she wanted to call Pittsburgh Filmmakers. And it would be uh, housed and funded by her organization, I guess.
0: And here's where things get a little less clear.
1: Yeah, in addition to Charles Glassmeyer, there was also Willard van de Bogart, who started something called the New Cinema Workshop. I spoke with Bob Gaylor, who was a designer at Peter Muller Monk Associates, as well as an artist and filmmaker. Now, Bob was also the initial president of Pittsburgh Filmmakers, and he described the culture of New Cinema Workshop.
6: Will uh, was the person who really started the Pittsburgh Independent Filmmakers Incorporated. That was his deal. He had a storefront on Ellsworth Avenue.
0: Yeah, Vanda Bogart opened New Cinema Workshop on July 1st, 1968 at 5744 Ellsworth Avenue. It was basically a co-op, and they screened films like the controversial I Am Curious Yellow and Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville.
6: It was very low-key, and they were all very passionate about it. Uh, Sally Dixon found it interesting and joined it also. One of, she was one of the members, and group people in there.
1: So Charles Glassmeyer and Willard Van De Bogart are making things happen.
6: And
5: I think the two of them were the ones who really got everything started, but that their efforts really led nowhere because they couldn't raise the money they needed. And when Sally got involved, which was in the probably around 1969 or 1970, she had very good connections through the uh, Institute. In fact, she, can, she had family connections with people at uh, Carnegie Institute.
1: Okay, so one could argue that New Cinema Workshop was a prototype for what became Pittsburgh Filmmakers. It was a community space dedicated to the viewing and making of experimental cinema. The community was there, or at least it was growing, and now the proposal for the film section was in the works.
3: Basically, the short story is I wrote the proposal for Pittsburgh filmmakers. Uh, she and I worked together, of course, and she, she approved every word of it when it was... And so uh, we wrote the original proposal and then gave it to Leon Arcus.
0: Leon Arcus was the director of Carnegie Museum of Art from 1969 to
3: 1980. So uh, she gave it the proposal we wrote to him, and he approved it. And so um, we got funded.
1: Which was great, because as Victor Grauer puts it...
3: The problem with
5: getting started with the filmmakers was it was a kind of catch-22 situation, where in order to get funding, we had to be incorporated. And in order to get incorporated, we needed funding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? So it was a vicious circle that we couldn't get around. Until Sally finally came up with a plan where we would be initially funded as part of the uh, film program at Carnegie Institute. So the money was funneled, I guess, through her office, and that enabled us to uh, buy the equipment we needed to get started. Okay.
0: So the proposal requested $89,820 which would cover three years of funding for screenings dealing with the history of film, like how Pittsburgh had the first film-only venue called Nickelodeon in 1905. It also covered avant-garde cinema and local filmmakers, along with visiting filmmaker lectures. These programs are essentially what became the film section, which we discussed in episode one.
1: So Sally secured a commitment for the film section from the Allegheny Foundation via Richard Mellon Scaife, And soon, she made plans to essentially expand the program, to create a new version of what the new cinema workshop aimed to be, a filmmaking co-op.
0: Yeah, these were exciting times. In the Carnegie Museum of Art archives, there's a letter that Sally wrote to filmmaker Jonas Mikas on April 8, 1970, that expresses excitement for possible funding for a workshop co-op in the basement of the building, dedicated to filmmaking. This letter was sent one week after Mikas presented the first guest lecture and screening at the film section, so things were moving quickly. Mm-hmm.
3: And so the film section evolved into uh, monthly screenings of movies at the museum. That be- became a whole sort of separate thing, and the filmmakers was a group of uh, Usually younger people. I was, I don't know, in my 30s in those days, I guess. That organization was interested in making films in the process of um, funding and and learning how to edit, learning the principles uh, of uh, a good film.
0: So the film section opened in April 1970, and then Pittsburgh filmmakers came to life in the fall of 1970.
4: Pittsburgh filmmakers initially began as just an equipment bank that was in the basement of the Carnegie Institute.
0: So in that sense, Pittsburgh filmmakers actually started in Oakland, stashing equipment in the Carnegie Museum.
4: Yeah, but they moved to a new location pretty quickly. And then within a few months... It was uh, moved out into the Selma Burke Art Center, which was an African-American visual arts space in East Liberty.
1: This may seem
4: random, but there is a connection between the
1: Selma Burke Art Center and the film section. The finances for both organizations were run through the Carnegie Institute, and both groups were on friendly terms with Theodore Hazlett, who headed the A.W. Mellon Educational and Charitable Trust.
6: Ted, for whatever reason, was enamored with the film world, especially experimental films. In
1: 1971, the Mellon Trust granted the film section $21,000 to start a filmmaking workshop.
5: And so we were able to purchase a uh, camera and an editing table, Steenbeck editing table, which was a very sophisticated editing device at that time, and I think a JNK and k optical printer, and I think those were the three key pieces of equipment that we were able to get.
1: Now, the Mellon Trust was also the funder of the Selma Burke Art Center. And Theodore Hazlett, the Mellon Trust, and the Carnegie Institute were all heavily involved in setting up that organization.
0: Yeah, our next episode will discuss the Selma Burke Arts Center in much more detail along with its namesake. The celebrated sculptor, Selma Burke.
1: But I don't know
5: if you know much about Selma Burke. She was a kind of celebrity in Pittsburgh as an artist. Uh, But we really had nothing to do with her. It was just that there was this space in her center in the basement. And so that was the first
4: space that we were able to use. The filmmakers, people were on a different floor of the building, They would work on editing films, training themselves through a series of workshops and film courses. It was a membership-based organization, so for a very small fee, anybody from the general public could go in daytime or after hours and complete projects that they were working on. Brady Lewis was in high school when
1: he first visited the Selma Burke Art Center location of Pittsburgh Filmmakers.
2: I'm Brady Lewis. I uh, was involved with Pittsburgh Filmmakers starting in 1971 when I was 16 years old, and uh, I uh, stayed involved with it uh, until 2015.
1: For 30 years, he was the director of education and a faculty member teaching film and video production.
2: I was in high school when I started going there, and you drove around the back, and I think there was kind of a gravel parking lot. You came to the door, which was on a side street just off the Penn Circle, and the door had one of those little viewing lenses so they could see who's coming in, and under it, somebody had made a little sign that said HAL 9000.
1: HAL 9000, 9, if you remember, is the artificial intelligence character from Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey.
2: And then you came in and you went immediately downstairs. It was kind of the basement where all the stuff for filmmakers was. Uh, you went down a little hallway. On your left, there were uh, some small dark rooms. If you went straight ahead through the main door, there was like a, a big room that was the main area of what we called the workshop.
1: Brady mentions a number of other rooms, a sound room, a room with an animation stand.
2: There was an editing room with a uh, flatbed, 16 millimeter editing machine.
1: And screenings were held in a big room in the basement.
2: When I say a big room, it was probably 20 by 25. It wasn't enormous, but people would project stuff on probably a tripod screen and sit on the floor and talk about the, you know each person's film as the, at, right after they were shown, or maybe nobody had anything to say, but yeah, you know, that was the idea. And then sometimes they had screenings upstairs in the Selma Burke proper, in a bigger room with folding chairs that would be set up. And again, a tripod screen, a big one, projectors at the back of the room. And I do remember seeing Undine's print. Undine had a print of Andy Warhol's movie Chelsea Girls, and Undine was the star of Chelsea Girls. He played the Pope. And I I took a a friend with me who wasn't involved in not in any kind of film, let alone real avant-garde film. And I guess we stayed for about 45 minutes. When my friend, I took my friend out because he his girlfriend had broken up with him and he was depressed and he found this movie to be so depressing we had to go somewhere else so we didn't stay all the way through the Chelsea girls I remember that
0: So what did these early years at Pittsburgh Filmmakers look like?
1: Mm, Classes, screenings, lectures. Let's check back in with Ben O'Granek and Victor Grauer.
4: Sally Dixon taught courses at Pittsburgh Filmmakers. She taught a class called Creative Vision, which was all about thinking like an artist behind the camera. Sally Dixon used Pittsburgh Filmmakers as like a hands-on training ground so that people who attended her programs at the museum could maybe extend their curiosity and become artists themselves. So there was a lot of collaboration between Pittsburgh filmmakers and Carnegie Museum of Art film section.
5: So very often a visiting artist would come and present his work at both places. Uh, So someone who would present at uh, Sally's series at Carnegie Institute, then, and then maybe the next night would come to Pittsburgh Filmmakers and give a program at Pittsburgh Filmmakers.
1: Was, was there a difference in uh, tone or level of discussion between the film section and the filmmakers, Pittsburgh Filmmakers screenings?
5: No, not really. Uh, both of them, both were very informal. Hmm. Both went on for a long time. I mean, <laughs> that was one of the problems because these people really love to talk. And so you would have these programs that would start at 8 o'clock and go on well after 11 o'clock at night. Uh, And the difference is, I think, that at Carnegie Institute, they had to close down, I think, at 11, whereas Pittsburgh filmmakers, we could continue indefinitely (laughs) (laughs) until midnight sometimes. yeah, It got to be pretty exhausting, yeah.
6: So it
1: sounds like a lot of cool stuff is happening. Filmmakers are making films, giving lectures, and the experimental film community is growing.
0: Yeah, in the early days, in 1971 and 1972, you had Bob Gaylor as president, and Bob Costa was a director. But the environment was cooperative, and that allowed a number of people to have a say in the direction of the organization.
1: Yeah, you have hired employees, but you also had volunteers which implies some
6: steady involvement.
0: And it's really the case that many volunteers became employees as the organization grew. Here's Bob Kaler with an example.
6: The person that was maybe one of the most instrumental people in making a success out of Pittsburgh filmmakers in those early days was uh, Phil Curry. Before he was hired as the director, he was a volunteer, a successful uh, documentary filmmaker who knew everything about making movies. He knew exactly what kind of flatbed to get. He knew exactly what other accessory equipment we needed, recording instruments, microphones.
0: So this co-op structure allowed a number of artists to get involved and influence the direction of Pittsburgh filmmakers.
1: Yeah, for example, photography was not originally part of the plan for Pittsburgh filmmakers but it was included early on in a casual way because an artist had an interest in it.
2: Filmmakers was always uh, different and special because it included photography. None of these other media centers at that time did. The ones who did really modeled themselves after us. But, but Walt Seng told me that uh, in sometime in 1970, he and Bob Gaylor and Bob Haller were in Gaylor's kitchen. Gaylor and Haller were talking about starting this this new equipment access center for filmmakers. And Walt said, I just threw out, would you consider photography too? And they said, Yeah, why not? And and he said he told me that's that that casually is how photography came to be integrated into filmmakers.
6: The person that really built the photography uh, thing was uh, Walter Seng, S-E-N-G. Walter Seng is a CMU graduate
1: who worked in commercial photography. For a while, he wrote a column about photography for Peterson's Photographic in the 1970s and often photographed Mr. Rogers, including a photograph of Mr. Rogers and King Friday, which ended up on a U.S. stamp. Hmm,
0: That's interesting. Yeah. So another important character is Robert Howler, who would influence the direction of Pittsburgh filmmakers throughout the 1970s. But before we talk about Howler, we should talk about how Pittsburgh filmmakers moved back to Oakland.
1: Yeah, specifically 205 Oakland Ave. Mm -hmm.
6: i think we were given a signal that we couldn't stay in the basement there you know selma wanted her space she wanted that whole building here and uh so i i worked with uh ted hazlett again uh ted has strings everywhere through his boss who has some immense strings at the time like jim mellon i guess it was he said well you know there is a space on oakland avenue maybe So Ted and I went over and looked at it. I said, this would be excellent. The only trouble was it was like a a walk upstairs all the way up. They didn't have any ADA stuff then. So I said, great. And so he scored the lease for us and we signed up for it. There is a little more
1: background on how Bob Gaylor found out about the building. Here is Victor Grauer, who, if you remember, was also a professor at the University of Pittsburgh at the time.
5: The big move we made was from the Selma Burke Arts Center to the um, facility that we had uh, on Oakland Avenue. And I was partly responsible for that because as a member of the faculty at Pitt, I got wind of this arrangement that had been made with an organization called People's Oakland. And People's Oakland was trying very hard to get the university to pay attention to local organizations. And they worked out an arrangement with Pitt that there was at least one building. There may have been more buildings, but there was this one building that was owned by Pitt that Pitt wasn't really doing anything with. That was a facility that was going to be turned over to People's Oakland as part of this arrangement. But the problem was that People's Oakland, and I got wind of this as a member of the faculty, at Pitt. People's Oakland was never able to raise any money to do anything with that space. And the space was a kind of a mess. It had been a a restaurant, and it, it had been neglected for a long time. And I knew that we were going to be getting some money through this arrangement with Carnegie Institute. And so I reported this to Sally and to Bob Gaylor, who was president of filmmakers at, at that time. I suggested that they look into this building because uh, it was available. You know, Pittsburgh Filmmakers is a community organization, so uh, it was eligible to take advantage of this uh, space. So that was how that got started, and then Bob Gaylor sort of took over.
6: I can speak to all that because I had to sign all the leases and everything, right? So Phil Phil was the guy who actually... Uh, went in there and demolished and built everything.
1: Bob Gaylor is talking about Phil Curry, the second director of Pittsburgh Filmmakers.
6: And all of us jumped in and helped. We got some money from Mellon to uh, do some remodeling
2: work. We raised something like $40,000 and did this construction over a period of... um, over a year
6: and so we built you know editing rooms we had three editing rooms
2: building dark rooms and building classrooms and putting in all the infrastructure putting in uh heating no air conditioning building a gallery we purchased
6: a optical printer so we could print images onto film or or reprint films optically and stretch them out into slow motion or change their formatting and all kinds of stuff Actually, I did a I did an optical print for Hollis Frampton myself. And so that was all built into the new Oakland Avenue facility, primarily by volunteers, but with Phil leading the charge and working weekends and nights and everything. He was amazing. He never got proper thank you for it publicly.
2: Most of the people who worked on that were filmmakers and photographers, artists who were had an interest in wanting to see this come to fruition. There were some professional plumbers and electricians brought in, I know. Some of the artists uh, had real skills, carpentry skills and that kind of stuff too.
6: We were about maybe two thirds of the way done. It was really down to sanding the floors and painting the walls and stuff. And that Phil had got some major project or two and had to uh, be on his way. With Phil Curry leaving, the organization
1: needed a new executive director.
6: Sally Dixon was really gung-ho
1: for Bob Haller. Charles Glassmeyer remembers Bob Haller when he was a young student at Pittsburgh Filmmakers.
3: Bob Haller was a student when when we first met. He was very interested in film. Uh, he was no expert at the time we we got together. I mean, God bless him. But he just blossomed over the next couple of years. Once Sally saw what he could do, she she just kind of let him run. And he was very good. He was a very good operator.
1: So Bob Haller was hired as the executive director of Pittsburgh Filmmakers in 1973.
6: And by the way, Bob was in there volunteering and helping you know, hammer and crowbar and everything all the way. And he picked up the ball and very heroically kind of kept going with the building of it and everything. So, and then uh, Bob Haller took over. I mean, he, he just,
5: he really made it happen. I mean, he was there every day and he figured out how to do it. I mean, he didn't have any experience with carpentry or anything like that, but he was hard at work um, working on this project.
1: Grady Lewis was one of those volunteers that Bob Haller roped
2: in. Well, I was 18, too, because that's how old I was when Haller asked me if I would um, help him install the furnaces in the new place on Oakland Avenue. And I told him I knew nothing about furnaces or ductwork or anything. And he said, yeah, neither do I. We'll figure it out, and it'd probably be a three-day job. And that, that took about a month to do that job, the two of us not knowing what we were doing.
1: We said volunteers, but Brady was paid a bit of money.
2: I mean, I thought I was making good money, but it was probably $1. sixty-five an hour when I started and maybe $3 an hour when I stopped.
5: And so we were able to move into this uh, much more extensive and interesting facility.
4: You'd walk up these stairs to the second floor. That's Ralph Fettuccio again. And at the top was a huge mural of Maya Deren, famous, you know, experimental filmmaker, did meshes in the afternoon, beautiful stuff. You then split off and went off into the theater area here and then went off into the production areas over here in the, in the gallery. Yeah, it was a really cool place.
5: And then we were there for many years. We were there for as long as I was there.
0: All right. So after all that work, opening night arrived on March 6th, 1975.
1: And at the opening, James Broughton, a filmmaker, a poet associated with the pre-beatnik San Francisco Renaissance, and a member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, premiered a film called Testament.
0: Yeah, Testament is a 20-minute self-portrait that Broughton narrates, taking the viewer through a dreamlike depiction of his life.
1: Yeah, it's a playful film mysterious, self-effacing, erotic. And there's a bit of slapstick and an homage to early cinema's interest in displaying magic through quick edits. It's uh, actually quite a lovely film.
0: Yeah, avant-garde cinema historian P. Adam Sidney called it one of the most remarkable films ever produced within the American independent cinema.
1: But everyone I spoke with remembered Pittsburgh filmmakers' opening night in Oakland less for what it screened and more for the accomplishment that that night represented.
2: For those of us who had been there working on it, the big deal was that we were opening to the public with this facility With uh, for uh, the first screening. We had an important artist, James Broughton, and that was a big deal, but the focus was really more on the fact that it was a big party and we were opening to the public it was such an accomplishment to have our own place and have it all finished and new and nice we thought it was unbelievably nice uh it wasn't very long before people started to think that it was pretty run down but um yeah it at that moment it was it was beautiful
1: so opening night was a pretty big event
2: the event was packed now we had a it was a 50 seat screening room 50 seats We regularly uh, added folding chairs, and I'm going to guess for that event, we probably had 80 people in there. Yeah, 80 people in a
1: room that seats 50 is a lot of people, but it's also a reminder of how small the scene for independent film was at this time. 80 people for a grand opening in a city of 700,000 is a small percentage.
0: Yeah, once Pittsburgh filmmakers reopened in their Oakland location, activity started to flourish and a lot of interesting people were hanging out and making interesting work. Here's Bob Gaylor.
6: You know, it drew in a lot of really, I thought, very interesting, talented, inventive people. Greg Gans was a very, I thought he was a film poet. Paul Gl- Glabicki, uh, Stephanie Barrows came out of there eventually. Walt Singh took over the photography program. Victor Grauer, by the way, is like one of the really wonderful artists that came out of there. I mean, he is no, he is no joke. That guy is an artist. And so Victor and a number of other people started doing uh, workshops for the public. And there were a number of them, you know, editing, sound recording, but also with like an artist like Robert Breer did an animation workshop and showed us how he did his animations, which were always sweet and lovely things.
1: So we are a little under five years into the existence of Pittsburgh filmmakers. The Oakland location provided stability for classes, lectures, and workshops, and Robert Haller would remain executive director from 1973 to 1979.
0: And Robert Haller became a very important person in developing Pittsburgh filmmakers in the 1970s. But it wasn't without various tensions.
2: Filmmakers would not have lasted through the 1970s if Bob Haller hadn't been there. There's no question in my mind about that. He was so single-minded and devoted. He had a lot of detractors, and he certainly had management-style flaws, and it all worked better when he didn't really have any employees, uh, and he just did everything. But it was his fanatical devotion that, Kept everything going because I mean it was it was a very uh, tight and very small budget for that place.
1: Bob Haller and Bob Gayler worked on getting funding for Pittsburgh filmmakers.
0: Yeah, and one of their biggest funders was the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, which was founded in 1965 as part of President Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society programs.
1: Yeah, it's important to note that government programs provided the necessary capital to sustain arts organizations like Pittsburgh Filmmakers. Often, arts organizations live or die, depending on the preferences of political leadership. Remember, we are talking about the 1970s. NEA chairperson Nancy Hanks is very responsible for increasing the funding of the NEA 14-fold in these years. This is before President Reagan tried to defund the NEA in 1981 an idea that gained favor again in the late 80s, 1994,
0: 2017, and 2018.
1: Yeah, rough times
0: for the arts. Here's Bob Geller on the impact of the NEA for Pittsburgh filmmakers.
6: They formed a a film and video department. There were several of us small film co-ops around the country, and uh, Brian O'Doherty was the director of the National Endowment's film program. And he actually came in person with another person, I believe Don Drucker. They all came and saw our facility and, you know, our filmmakers showed them some work and we had a show in the gallery. And so so we became the darlings, one of the many darlings of their program. We were able to start getting funding for, you know, our programs. You have to do that. A a nonprofit has to show a track record before anybody, you know. Money follows program is my mantra, you
1: know. It's worth noting that in 1971, Sally Dixon joined the NEA's Media Arts Panel. She played a role in shaping how the NEA and presumably other forms of government funding would impact independent film and video.
0: So Pittsburgh filmmakers also received money from the photography department at the NEA and through the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts, which was another product of the 1960s.
6: Uh, The space was a dollar a year. I mean, I think we had to pay the utilities. So with enough
1: money coming in to survive as an organization, the question becomes what to do with it. And from the interviews I did, uh, it sounds like that is where a few disagreements arose. Here's Brady Lewis.
2: I remember a board meeting. Haller, I think, had asked for a raise. And so it became an issue. Well, the board was all artists. And one of the artist members of the board felt that it was an an outrage that we were paying this administrator $10,000 a year to run the place, and he now wanted even more than that. And I remember this guy saying, we could have a management structure that's totally different from this. We could hire five artists and pay them each $2,000 a year, and that way, we could support artists and they could have a living wage and we wouldn't need somebody like Haller. And he was sort of painted it as if Haller was like a, um, a leech or something like that because a lot, of, a lot of artists at that time, in that era particularly, I think, didn't really understand that administrative work was important or necessary. Anyway, that didn't happen but that was actually discussed at a board meeting. Board meetings could last five hours sometimes because it was all these artists who had their opinions about anything. And uh, there were arguments over, you know, the the janitor was a friend of several board members and uh, Haller had fired the janitor. And so they wanted to, you know, put Haller on trial about that.
1: Pittsburgh filmmakers hit another point of tension when trying to balance the needs of furthering the careers of local filmmakers with the funding required to host and screen work by guest filmmakers. Here is Victor Grauer.
5: One of the problems that we had at the filmmakers was one of the reasons we wanted to organize this and make this a corporation or whatever, I I guess we wanted to incorporate, we were told that there was no way for us to raise funding for our work unless we were part of an organization that could do the fundraising for us. Okay. And I mean, there were some possibilities for getting grants and I did over time from the uh, Mm -hmm. National Endowment for the Arts. But for the most part, it was almost impossible to get a grant unless we did it through an organization. That was one of the motivations that the group of local filmmakers had to do that but as it turned out it never really worked out that way and we were never really able to get the funding or the attention that we wanted through the filmmakers the filmmakers turned out to be more of a venue thanks to Haller it turned out to be more of a venue for bringing in visiting artists than it was for helping out the local artists We were able to get shows at the filmmakers, and and I was able to get a show at the Carnegie Institute. But um, other than that, so none of us ever really traveled much.
0: So like we saw in episode one, the filmmakers that traveled to Pittsburgh to screen films with Sally Dixon made a nice amount of money, and they screened work for an enthusiastic audience. As Victor points out, it was more rare for filmmakers from Pittsburgh to travel with their work and reap those same kinds of benefits.
5: The only traveling we did, I remember one time I went to the Millennium uh, Film Center at, uh, in New York and I brought a group of Pittsburgh-made films and showed them there. Roger Jacoby showed his work at the... through um, Jonas Mekas and ended up having a big fight with Jonas Mekas. <laughs> <laughs> this was really set up more for the visiting filmmakers uh, than it was for us. It was... Nice, because we had equipment. Filmmakers was able to supply the local filmmakers with equipment, with editing table, professional quality sound equipment, movie cameras that we could borrow. Uh, But other than that, um, it didn't really do much for us as far as getting funding was concerned.
0: It's interesting that at the beginning of this story, the struggle was to get enough equipment to make a film. But now the struggle shifts. How do filmmakers distribute their films?
5: The trouble was that as far as funding was concerned, we were competing with the organization itself. The organization needed funding, okay? So the people who ran the organization, after, even after Howler left, there were other directors, and I would have long conversations with them, and they would be very honest. They would say, look, we're having a hard enough time raising money to keep the organization going. So how can we raise money for local filmmakers to to do their thing?
1: So that's a fundamental issue. How do you do two things at once with limited means? And it sounds like there were also quite a few non-fundamental issues that took up quite a bit of time.
2: That's the thing. People sometimes say, well, the, the 70s at filmmakers, those were the glory years. In certain ways they were. But there were a lot of interpersonal clashes that people don't really... Remember or choose to think about so much, but there was a lot of that. There was a lot of infighting as well. Uh, looking back, looking at the bigger picture, it was a great time, but uh, it, there was also every every decision. There was always because the whole place was completely artist run. With every decision, there was always somebody to question it and, and somebody to say it was the stupidest decision that could had ever been made in the history of, of the universe, you know, so...
0: So, despite tensions, the 1970s introduced a number of interesting and important ideas to Pittsburgh filmmakers.
1: Yeah, one cool thing was a publication called Field of Vision.
5: Yeah, that was something that Haller started, and that was a great idea. Uh, and I published a couple of uh, articles there. A theory—I published something called the Theory of Pure Film, which was published in two installments uh, in Field of Vision. And that, that really worked out well, and it was a really nicely designed uh, publication.
1: The first issue of Field of Vision was published in 1977. There were essays from filmmakers and historians along with film reviews. The publication lasted until 1985, at which point Robert Haller was five years into leading anthology film archives in New York City.
0: Yeah, and in the 1970s, Pittsburgh filmmakers continued collaborating with the film section at Carnegie Museum of Art. And they started to work with local universities, too, offering film classes. Here's Ben Ogrodnick again with the summary.
4: The film scene in Pittsburgh was really supported by a constellation of organizations that were all collaborating and cooperating together. Uh, because Pittsburgh filmmakers didn't have that much money but they were able to share costs of bringing in artists by, you know, hosting a workshop with James Broughton, for example, or Tony Conrad, Paul Sheritz. They could have those artists for a couple days and then the artists would present their work at the museum. It was a really mutually beneficial uh, environment and of course college students from Pitt or Carnegie Tech could enroll in film classes at Pittsburgh Filmmakers so it's important to keep in mind that in in the um in the 70s and the 80s it was a network of film institutions that were all kind of working in unison almost like an ecology an ecosystem it wasn't just CMU or Pitt that controlled uh, the resources.
0: In some ways, Bob Howler was like Sally Dixon. He became an advocate for film in Pittsburgh, and he helped to enhance Pittsburgh's reputation as a place for experimental cinema.
2: He was involved with so so much stuff with other organizations locally, with the Carnegie, with the film program that was developing at Pitt, With anything that was going on in the city but also with organizations outside of Pittsburgh and he was involved with promoting filmmakers as giving it a national presence and reputation simply by not just being in touch with people all in the film communities all around the country but also by bringing in artists and theoreticians, film scholars, bringing in all of these guests. It was Haller primarily who was responsible for bringing these people in over and over. We brought in Robert Breer numerous times. He, d- he did shows at the museum and at filmmakers, and he taught workshops at filmmakers. Haller in particular brought in scholars like P. Adam Sidney, Annette Michelson, They would come in and lecture. He did a lot, and he kind of put us on the map. At the time, a lot of it was unappreciated by people who were right there and weren't really looking at a bigger picture. But over time, I think even most of the people who who clashed with him, whether they ultimately liked him or not, could see that he uh, he was really important in making the place survive and... And be in position to grow.
1: So, Pittsburgh filmmakers in the 1970s. There are so many more stories to tell, and we'll tell a few more in a later episode.
0: Yeah, and our listeners might be interested in one of the sources that we used as research for this season— In 2005, Bob Haller published a book called Crossroads, Avant-Garde Film in Pittsburgh in the 1970s, which details his time in the city.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of great stories in the book and short profiles of artists like Carolee Schneeman, Gunver Nelson, Stephanie Barros, and Kenneth Inger. But like this podcast, it's not a complete history. Victor Grauer explains.
5: The thing that, that bugged me when Haller finally wrote this book about mainly a book about pittsburgh filmmakers uh and then he concluded a listing of programs that were presented in pittsburgh he left out almost everything that was presented at pittsburgh filmmakers almost everything that he included in his listing was at the carnegie institute and when i asked him about it he said that oh he lost his records (laughs) for for uh what what happened at pittsburgh filmmakers and i I guess I had no choice but to believe him. I don't think he would have left it out deliberately because these were programs that he organized himself. But in his book, it's very misleading because it gives the impression that everything happened at uh, at Carnegie Institute, whereas actually a lot happened at the
0: filmmakers.
1: The book is a fascinating read, though, and it's really affordable. I bought my copy for $5 from the Anthology Film Archives website.
0: Yeah, when I worked at the museum, I referenced that book all the time. There's so many great stories in there. But it concludes in 1979, which is the year that Haller resigned from Pittsburgh filmmakers.
1: Haller cited tensions with the board of directors, budget disagreements, and resistance to his desire to establish an endowment as his reasons for leaving.
0: So in 1980, Haller became executive director of Anthology Film Archives in New York City, where he worked in various capacities for over 35 years. So thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time, we'll look at an arts organization across town in East Liberty and its connections to Oakland.
1: The Selma Burke Art Center was a home for many art forms. It was dance, pottery, lectures, and performance.
0: And we'll dive deeper into the conversation on the way that arts organizations and institutions interact. So this episode was written by Catherine.
1: And Dave. And Dave made all the sounds, along with music from the band Waterer-er and the Ensemble Nat 28. Also, thank you to Stephen Haynes, who, through conversation, provided additional information on the history of Pittsburgh filmmakers.
0: The Oral History Program is funded by the Weibel Foundation and other generous donors.
1: If you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the Oral History Program at library.cmu.edu slash oral history. Also, hit subscribe so you don't miss more stories about Steel City Outsiders and the institutional avant-garde.
0: And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think.
1: See you next time.